My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. second millennium has revealed that an elite few have usurped the reason and common sense of the masses with a delicate balance of anthropological alchemy, scientific sorcery, and stagecraft silver screen deception. Talking heads pacify the anxious minds of frightened farm folk and city slickers alike. Small town nobodies and off-the-grid freakers couldn't avoid the mental and physical restraints imposed by this hidden elite. Yet, who is this pansophical plutocracy? Today, we attempt to answer this ever-present inquiry with three-time returning guest, Esoteric Eddie, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Esoteric Eddie. the co-founder of the club of rome was connected to rockefeller and the rockefeller foundation through their group adela and adela was doing work back in the early 1900s building internationalist profits and stuff like that in businesses in southern america so Pecci was overseeing a lot of international interests in Southern America and helping bridge businesses and stuff like that. And he was also the president of Olivetti, which was an Italian technological company and technological consulting company, again, bridging technology companies and corporations internationally. And he was also well connected to Gianni Agnelli. Gianni Agnelli was the founder of the Fiat Motor Company. So basically the counter of Ford during those days, it was like the Italian Ford. And Gianni Agnelli, who many people have assumed or, or whatever, speculated that he was connected to the Italian mafia.
ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and with me again is the rock star of the conspiracy world from out west, my friend, Esoteric Eddie, back on the show Tell us about some of the new the new work he's been up to, continuing with his really great YouTube channel. He's covering, I mean, topics that most of them I haven't even heard of. And coming from me, that's saying a lot. This guy is digging deep, digging deep. Arnold of Br- London's alien guru. He's talking about the reptilian war against the greys and this big-headed black alien so i gotta say eddie you've been covering some pretty some pretty dusty corners of the conspiracy theory alternative universe so this is awesome man i'm excited i'm excited to get into this tell the folks what what's been keeping you motivated i mean the last few years have been pretty crazy what's been keeping you diving into all these weird topics for sure, for sure. Well, thanks for having me again, homie. And thank you to all the people at home listening. Yeah, man. I mean, I just, when I first started doing this, I had a couple topics in mind that I knew I for sure had to cover. So I kind of got those out of the way, but I always knew that I wanted to bring unique subjects, you know, things that I'm passionate about and just also things that I feel the community could use you know, that they didn't already have. Mm. But I've also revisited certain topics that are already, you know, well-known, but kind of like brought my own critique to it. Mm. You know, for example, I just dropped the Albert Pike and the World War III video yesterday. And that's a topic that's been talked about for close to 200 years. So that whole rumor with Albert Pike and the, the letter that predicted World War III, that's been circulating in the conspiracy community for almost 200 years. And it's been talked about and used as a, a point, you know, in all kinds of books and videos. So now, I decided when you uh, say I that, I decided to get into that one for myself and like, just look at it like, all right, man, like what's actually going on with this? Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. That's really curious. Now, when you say 200 years, Obviously, World War One and Two weren't even around 200 years ago. So, uh, so what were they? What were they calling it 200 years ago? Did they think of it like some kind of like grand war between all of the nations? Like, how did they describe that before World War One occurred? Yeah, so it's, it's been going around for almost 200 years, but it's closer to like 150 years or something. But so the rumor goes that Albert Pike, you know, for those who may not know who he was, he was a he was a war he was a Civil War Confederate general, but he was also a poet originally from um, Oklahoma or something. But he ended up living his days out in Arkansas. So he was a World War he was a Civil War Confederate general. He was a poet. He was a writer. He was a businessman. He like owned like some huge news writing company or something, but he ended up being one of the most prominent Freemasons. So his, his work is, you know, widely quoted in the conspiracy community and he wrote morals and dogma, which is kind of regarded as like the Freemason Bible. So he's a very nefarious character, Albert Pike, but the rumor goes that he wrote a letter to Giuseppe Mazzini, which is the, the Italian revolutionary right around the same time. So we're talking like late 1800s. So he wrote a letter to Giuseppe Mazzini, the Italian revolutionary, communist revolutionary. And apparently in that letter, he, he mapped out three world wars. 
you know, how the first one was supposed to happen, the second one, and then the third one. And the general rumor is that the third world war was going to be a war against the Christians and the Islamists, and they were supposed to cancel each other out. And then religion was supposed to cancel itself out. And so that the world would be destitute and looking for answers. And then at that moment, the Luciferians would step in with the universal new age religion and, and then provide that as a solution. So kind of like, reaction solution that whole thing but that's the rumor that's the rumor that's been circulating for quite some time and so i dug into it and found that basically in short the letter never existed but it's it's a it's a very interesting history on how that whole rumor got started and and how it progressed because it it progressed from the early 1900s and then onward to like 1950 and each person who like said the rumor added a little bit to it and it got more and more and more exaggerated. Right. And it's funny when you watch my video and you see what the first rumor was, what the original rumor was, it had nothing to do with world wars at all. Mm. It was just like this very vague thing about Pike sending a letter to Mazzini about just luciferians taking over the world huh. um, which is still weird but it had nothing to do with world wars yeah well it's interesting you know this game of telephone that happens within culture conspiracy theories often are victims of this sort of game of telephone where an idea is added to and passed and changed and transmuted but you know it's not completely far-fetched this theory right because you're probably aware of the p22 lodge the freemason lodge that was uh, around in italy i think post world war ii so clearly they had been around for quite a while and some people thought that there were you know political goals for these lodges like stirring up trouble maybe you know throw it overthrowing certain factions so that when you know the rivals come in they're weakened right i mean this kind of warfare has been going on for centuries but when you look at world war one they sort of coalesced all of the broken nations of Europe, all of the different monarchies, and and they all sort of, after World War II, became closer and closer and closer until eventually the UN and the EU are formed. And the same thing is kind of happening in the aftermath of World War II, where all of these different political ideologies are slowly being smashed away for just two options, right? Communism or capitalism. And, and it's not capitalism, really. It's corporatism, you know, some sort of aristocracy corporatism. So, yeah, I can see why people would theorize something like that, that it was all planned, because it certainly seems like we're leading up to some great event. Now, You've also been covering aliens quite a bit or UFOs quite a bit. Well, both. And I'm wondering, you know, this year so far, I mean, we're only two months in and there's already several sightings, people talking about things in the sky. Do you think Project Bluebeam is maybe like a continuation of that rumor that the Freemasons are orchestrating all the world wars and they sort of just added some sci-fi stuff to it. Do you think it's connected at all to that or or is it completely separate? I mean, what are your thoughts on the, the Project Bluebeam thing? Because we've talked about it before, but it seems like 2023 is is the year where they're they're setting the stage for it. Yeah, man. I mean, definitely everything is connected in one way or another, but I do think that there is a lot of exaggeration too, a lot of rumor and exaggeration in the world and specifically in the truther community. I find myself more and more becoming like a, like a debunker almost 
<laughs> like it's not my mission. Like my mission is always to just look at the academic truth of things. And, but every time I go into certain subjects, like the Pike letter, I end up com- like just com- becoming a debunker. I'm like, oh shit. Okay. It was totally different than I thought, but yeah, everything's connected one way or another. There's definitely a lot of rumor and exaggeration, but there are other things that I think are just totally separate. You know, we kind of just, we like to generalize things and kind of just put it all into one, you know, concept or category or event. Cause it's just easier to cope with. But Project Bluebeam, again, it's one of those things that I've heard about all throughout my journey as a researcher going back 15 years. But it's actually not something that I haven't taken the time to look into yet because there are hundreds of things on my to-do list to, to dive into. And so it's just another one of those things that I have to sit down and really, really dive into. But it's interesting because we have all this UFO stuff popping up in the news and I mean, it's an obvious facade. It's an obvious psyop, you know, because they haven't produced any evidence of these actual UFOs. It was just like, oh, they're up there. We're going to shoot them down. We shot them down, but they never retrieved them. I I read like a news article a couple of days ago that stated, oh, U.S. gave up search for shot down UFO. So it's like, oh, how fucking convenient, you know, it's like and they're just using trigger words like UFO for one and then cylindrical objects. So I think it was all just a distraction for the many things that are going on right now, like for one, the Epstein list and all these different things going around the country with companies fucking derailing trains for chemical spills and all these things. So Project Blue being probably underway, but I think more or less we're just looking at distraction from some even more sinister things. Yeah, yeah, and, and Project Bluebeam itself, in a way, is a, a distraction. So even though you haven't looked into it, you're already sort of on the money, Eddie. I think, uh, as you said, all these things are, are, are connected, and yeah, it's, it's really strange. I agree with you, and it's kind of disappointing sometimes for the audience, I think. Like, they hear debunking, and they get it, it disappointed. They're like, oh, no, that, that's not why I'm here. But... Really, uh, our goal is truth. You know, we're still interested in these things. We just don't want to be a part of the PSYOP, right? So a big part of this is is deciphering it so that we don't fall victim to the same spell that these talking heads are under, you know? Because I honestly think that if, you know, Tucker Carlson or Anderson Cooper or any one of these talking heads had, you know, enough time to look at it, they would come to the same conclusions that we would if they're honest human beings. So... Yeah, it's it's kind of odd, but you you have this distraction going on. It's very serious things are happening in the world, and it, it, you can't help but feel like things are are being orchestrated. You mentioned the train derailment. I just found out Bill Gates owns all this train. Like he's got he's a shareholder in like something of twenty something percent of I don't know Canada's rail lines and. Who knows how many other rail lines, but, you know, you look at this guy like Bill Gates, and I believe his mother was on some sort of government board. I don't know if it was the UN or maybe even the committee of 300 that we're going to be talking about today. You just put out a really awesome documentary titled Committee of 300 Secret Rulers of the World. And Bill Gates, whether or not, you know, obviously his his secrets aren't being kept very hidden now, he's kind of in the public. But do you think that's like his role is to play front man for a group like this or another group possibly? 
Yeah, I mean, he's a strange character for sure, man. I mean, if there's any devil in the flesh, it's definitely that that guy. <laughs> but yeah, another one of those things that I've been meaning to really look into, you know, because he's he's everywhere and he's been everywhere for such a long time. And one thing that I've learned after looking at a lot of subjects in detail <clears throat> is that we are vastly behind on a lot of this stuff. You know, for example, the Committee on 300, which we're going to talk about, I, I mean, the, the globalist philosophy has been going on for almost, oh, again, almost 200 years, you know, and so we're, ba- we're barely catching up on what a lot of these guys have been doing. And Bill Gates is one of those guys that have been around for decades now, and his power and his reach has just become so insane and he's got to be stopped, man. He's got to be stopped, but at the very least, he's got to be studied, you know? So he's, he should definitely be on the top of my priority list to study, man, because that is where the power is, is, is studying and education. The more we know in detail, the more we can actually attack these things and, and organize ourselves. Mm-hmm. Agreed, bro. Agreed. And you've been on the show before. I think this is a a reason why my family thinks I'm crazy. I think it's possibly a reason why some members of your family think you're crazy. But if I remember correctly, there are a few people in your family who rock with you and and don't think you're crazy. They actually appreciate the digging that you're doing. And that's always good to to hear that we have support. And uh, you got support from the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy family, of course, me and all the listeners. But when it comes to the Committee of 300, what sort of piqued your interest with them did you stumble upon them looking into something else or had you had it like set in your mind that you were going to cover them eventually well it's kind of a funny story so the committee of 300 was again one of those terms that i've always heard here and there throughout my esoteric journey going it's one of the earliest terms that i heard back in the day like 2010 ish or whatever and so it was always in the back of my mind and it, I really never gave it much thought. But recently I was at a thrift store or a used bookstore and I came across John Coleman's book, The Conspirators Hierarchy Committee of 300. And I, and I was like, oh, what? This looks dope, you know, because it was very rigorous and like very heavily information based. And, but it didn't have a price on it. So I went up to the, the cashier. And I was like, hey, like, how much is this book? I thought it was going to be like $8 or something. And she's all typing away at the computer. And then she's like, oh, what? Like, this is $200. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I got to I gotta reshelf this. And I'm like, oh, I didn't have the money for it right then and there. So I was like, damn it, dude. I wish I had a pencil on me. I could have just scribbled in $8 on it or something, you know? But so when she told me it was worth that much, that's when I was like, oh, this, this has got to be something something like really important then. So I, I put it in my mind to go home and and research it. And then I found like a PDF version of it. So I started reading through his book and I thought it was amazing. And I thought it was a great topic to cover. So that, yeah, that's pretty much how it came about. It was all because of that experience. Set author's name again. John Coleman, also known as Dr. John Coleman. And you're not going to find much on the guy. I mentioned that in the documentary, not going to find much, which is weird, but he was on the Alex Jones show a couple times back around 2010. But even then he was already aging and like reaching the end of his life. Mm. And I just saw that in around like last year, 2022, Alex Jones brought him up 
in conversation and he said that he didn't know like where he was or anything. And the last that he had heard about him was that he was pretty much in bed sick and dying. So I'm pretty sure he's already passed away. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. This book looks excellent, man. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And that's the weird thing. It's with, with these types of books, they just appear in the bookstore, like Eddie, Eddie, grab me, right? You didn't need yeah. to buy it. It was, it was available somewhere and you found it. And I think the universe does that to people, especially through books. I mean, I'm kind of addicted in a sense to, to buying books and, and chasing that. And, you know, that's the weird thing is you publish something and your whole life can change. You know, I don't know how you feel about this as an author yourself, but a guy like John Coleman putting this information together. I've heard, you know, stories of guys like him, you know, falling victim to mysterious circumstances, you know, out of nowhere, heart attacks and things like that. Right. So yeah, yeah it's definitely sing to hear that from Jones, but we wish him the best if he is still alive, Coleman. So anyways, the committee of 300, the conspirators hierarchy. Wow. Yeah. This seems like a diamond in the rough, man. Yeah. Yeah. So Coleman and there's uh, there's a one video of him that existing on the Internet, too. You can find the one presentation that's available of his on the Internet. And I watched the whole thing. It's like an hour or something long. It's from this now defunct organization that was known as Wake Up America. They put it together, I think, back in the 90s or something. But so so Coleman, he says in the beginning of the book, in the intro of the book, that he used to work for British intelligence, that he moved to the U.S. in 1970. And after he retired from intelligence, he became a congressional lawyer. And he claims that he was able to travel the world and see a lot of men's and operations firsthand of what a lot of these you know, committee of 300 guys were doing. But when he released the, the, the book, he was already 57 years old at, at the release of the book. So he was already aged at that point and he'd already seen a lot. And it's a really great book. But uh, so where he got the name, the committee of the 300, where he got that idea was actually from a guy named Walter Rathenau. So Walter Rathenau, he was the foreign minister of Germany in World War One. And he was also like a liberal politician who was trying to transition Germany into a more international country after World War One. But Walter Rathenau stated in a German newspaper that, and I quote, 300 men, all of whom know one another, guide the economic destinies of the continent and seek their successors from their own milieu. And so that's where John Coleman got the, the, the number of 300. It's from Walter Rathenau's quote, that 300 men, you know, all who know each other, pretty much control the known world. And again, Walter Rathenau, he was the foreign minister of Germany, and he was trying to take Germany into the new world, into the international world, into the evolving industrial world. Because at that time, at the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of the 1900s, we were shifting from the old agricultural world into the new industrial world. And so a lot of these, you know, elite or, you know, people saw an opportunity. They saw the shift ahead of the, the common folk and understood where the world was going. But Walter Rathenau, because he was a liberal politician and because he was of Jewish origin, was actually assassinated 
So he was assassinated by the German nationalists who didn't agree with his his ideas of branching out and becoming an international government. And well, John Coleman, John Coleman in his book, he details the Committee of 300's goals, which I'll list a few of them. And when we look at them, it's pretty, uh, you know, pretty telling. And, and it's obvious that these things are being worked out right now before our eyes. So the the list of their goals, according to Coleman, is a one world church and monetary system, destruction of national identity, control of the mind legalization of drugs and pornography, population control, mass unemployment, collapse of world economies, infiltration and destruction of education. Sounds and, like a uh, lot of those goals have been accomplished. Wow. When, and that was written in the turn of the century, the 19th century. So the eight, or I'm sorry, the 20 beginning of the 20th century, you said, right? So like the 1900s. Well, we, well, Walter Rathenau's quote was was during the early 1900s, but Coleman's book was published uh, in the 90s. Right. Okay. Okay. So these were their goals. When when do you when do you think those were established? What time period? Well, Coleman published the book in the 90s, but at that point he was already 57 years old, and he had claimed that he had been studying all this for a couple decades. So he must have come across this information what in the 70s or something. So he already he was he was already aware of. A lot of this stuff back in the 70s. But as I'll get into, I mean, it's very clear that the the globalist philosophy has been going on since the early 1900s and even the late 1800s. Yeah, yeah. And before we go too far into the contemporary, through my research into Skull and Bones, I found out that Germany was sort of a hotbed for a lot of these ideas that would evolve into what we would consider maybe the more fascist or authoritarian forms of government. A lot of people are probably familiar with the Prussian military school education system and how they sort of implemented that in the United States. Another person that's interesting and possibly connected to these types that formed the committee would be George Hegel. And, one, you know, one of his fundamental ideas was that everything is dead. He, he, he thought the whole earth is dead matter, dead material. And this sort of idea on a spiritual level has really infected uh, this sort of intelligentsia you know, science types, right? They really yeah. believe this, that, that, you know, and this is the foundation of atheism really is the idea that everything is, is just this sort of chaotic, you know, out of nowhere. And I'm not a creationist or a fundamentalist. I mean, I do believe in a God and a creator. I'm not like standing on my corner, like screaming at people for, for, you know, not believing in that but i do think that this is is inherently a part of it this whole idea that we're living in some kind of dead realm and our life is just fleeting and and happenstance and not meaningful yeah yeah and on that note like the the globalists have used like climate change and everything is going to hell they've used that whole narrative since the beginning to try and shuttle us into the new world order as i'll get into coleman with coleman he believed that it all pretty much began or centered around the club of rome and so the club of rome was founded back in 1968 with by alexander king and aurelio pecci 
Now, Alexander King was uh, recruited by the British government as deputy scientific advisor during World War II. And after the war, King became chief scientific advisor to the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. So, you know, a very top-ranking guy. And Coleman details King's role in the socialization of education. So there used to be this journal known as the Executive Intelligence Review Journal. And they were kind of like a conspiracy journal back in the day. And in one of their 1981 issues, there was an interview that they quoted of King's and where King basically says that him and his people were behind the socialization of education, pretty much the dumbing down of education and making it focus on just building workers rather than intelligent people. And in that interview, King states that him and his people try to be five years ahead of the curve. They try to think five years ahead of the general population, but that they try to never seem as if they're more than two years ahead. Otherwise, if people really knew how far ahead they were, they would be killed. That's what he says. So King was a a very important dude. And Aurelio Pecci was just as strange. So Aurelio Pecci, the co-founder of the Club of Rome, was connected to Rockefeller and the Rockefeller Foundation through their group, Adela. And Adela was doing work back in the early 1900s, building internationalist profits and stuff like that in businesses in Southern America. So Pecci was overseeing a lot of international interests in Southern America and helping bridge businesses and stuff like that. And he was also the president of Olivetti, which was an Italian technological company and technological consultant company, again, bridging technology companies and corporations internationally. And he was also well connected to Gianni Agnelli. Gianni Agnelli was the founder of the Fiat Motor Company. So basically the counter of Ford during those days, it was like the Italian Ford. And Gianni Agnelli, many people have assumed or or whatever, speculated that he was connected to the Italian mafia. And so him and Pecci were really close. And Agnelli is actually the one who also employed him to go out to Southern America and also bridge some internationalist interests and try to find, you know, cheap labor and stuff like that. And Pecci was also a liberal socialist during World War II you know, fighting for internationalism, socialism, and stuff like that. And he was also a post-war corporatocracy consultant. So that's what he was really famous for. He was, he was a consultant for a lot of businesses and rich men and stuff like that. So both him and King were international socialists. And Pecci was also a writer. He was a speaker and a writer. He was very prolific when it came to giving presentations and, and writing. And Pecci wrote a book that's very famous in the globalist community known as The Human Quality, which he published in 1977. And in that book, there's a lot of telling information on how these guys were thinking. So I got a quote here, and I guess it's from Pecci, co-founder of the Club of Rome in in 1977. He says, from the organizational standpoint, it seems appropriate for the concept to be applied of networks of specified centers using social actors 
non-governmental organizations and ad hoc groups organized to to collaborate towards a common goal in different parts of the world. It would strengthen the perception that a global approach is indispensable to face up to human problems. They would in fact be in many ways interlinked and together form a sort of system which embraces the entire globe in a variety of ways. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, people who have maybe grown up in a position where life's good, they they th- they hear this and they're like, "Well, what's wrong with that? Just a bunch of rich guys going out of their way to make sure they make more money. Isn't that what everybody wants to do?" But, you know, we're not just conspiracy theorists here. We have hearts. We see what's going on in the world. We feel what's going on in the world. You mentioned South America. Look at how much they've been, you know, oppressed over the past 100 or so years all the shifts in governments the crime the you know multinational gangs that run amok through these countries uh, and even in the government you know and and not to mention the destruction of the rainforest and the native peoples who you know called this place home for thousands of years so yeah we're talking about the 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 globalists those who want to continue colonization process and homogenize the whole human race you know i mean this is something that really is is despicable but but yeah it's fascinating to see how they pulled this off you know with their machismo and and it just you know they have like these movies presenting wealthy people as like you know movers and shakers so everybody's like yeah that you know rooting for them in a certain sense, you know, because they're creating the culture to, you know, back up their, their agenda in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, man. And the club of Rome's first publication was the limits to growth. Mm -hmm. And the club of Rome was put together to be this front, like climatic group or economic group. And that's a blueprint that would be followed, as we'll see, all the way up to the World Economic Forum. So the Club of Rome was this international group, this international front group, who, who stressed the importance of economics and you know global climate change and all that kind of stuff. And so their first pub- publication, known as The Limits to Growth, was put together and it was meant to like startle the world governments into coming together to fight global, you know, changes and climate changes and economic changes. And that book is very important in economics. So if you were to take economic an economic class or whatever, you would quickly learn about this, this book, The Limits to Growth. It's shaped economics in a huge way. And it actually led to what is known as zero growth economics, which is a term that is still used. So the limits to growth was put together. And in that book, they pretty much stated, you know, back in the seventies, that if we were to continue on the trend that we were on as a global society, that we would run out of resources in a hundred years and everything would go to, to, to chaos and hell and every, everybody would die. So we need to pull together and, you know, start putting our minds together and create a global system to stop this from happening. And they would always stress the point of overpopulation. You know, we need to do something about overpopulation, this, this, and that. And this has been a a blueprint that's been copied over and over. And in the Limits to Growth book, they quoted Bertrand Russell. 
And Bertrand Russell was another one of these academic elites, you know, these philosophers of the globalists, you know, globalist philosopher of the 20th century. And Bertrand Russell was the grandson of Lord John Russell, the a prime minister of Great Britain under Queen Victoria. And Russell also taught the science of power at the London School of Economics and Philosophy at the University of Chicago and UCLA. So another one of these globalist philosophies of the 20th century. And so the Club of Rome quoted him in The Limits to Growth, and they quoted one of his essays known as In Praise of Idleness. And in that essay by Bertrand Russell, he pretty much pauses this, this conundrum of the evolving industrial revolution. And he states that, you know, if we were to produce only the amount of supply needed, then that would constitute as productive. You know, if we were to go to work for eight hours and produce the exact number of product we need, then that would constitute productivity. But if we were to create a machine that creates twice as much and gives us the ability to work half as less, then that would that would result in idleness and that would result in a surplus of product that we don't need. And that would slowly drive us into a deteriorating state. And so Russell believed that the common folk should just stick to working eight hours and producing as much as, as we need and no more. And that we shouldn't focus on creating a situation where we have more idleness on our hand. So basically stay, saying that there should be a caste system in this world. You know, there should be the global elite and the global workers and that the global workers should focus their lives in the global factory system and that they shouldn't be given idleness or free time. Wow. Yeah, and that's so, sort of what I hear being said about people in America, right? Anyone below $34,000 a year, I think, doesn't make the cut. But above $34,000 a year, you're in the global 1%, right? And that would be the elite of the elite in terms of, you know, all the other 8 billion people. Um, and, yeah, I think many Americans are in that position, and most of them are probably unaware of a lot of what we're talking about. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but it takes a lot of like mental energy to keep up in the American rat race. And I'm a, I'm a slacker in some sense of the word, so I know what it's like to just sit around and be idle. And I feel like, you know, there's a certain amount of spiritual growth that can occur if you're constantly working. You have to have some rest. I mean, it's totally natural. I think you would agree with that. But the way they they phrase this, it's almost like, uh, obviously, it's from the perspective of the elite, right? So they don't value our time uh, as the 99% of the world. So they think, okay, yeah, it's great to uh, have them busy while we can enjoy the fruits of their labor, but it almost seems like uh, they're going towards the ladder where they're allowing the deterioration to happen. Do you think that's what's going on? That Maybe they're using that to their advantage to sort of sway things to the point where people say, no, we need to go back to being factory slaves. Well, I think the situation changed. I mm. think a lot of things have changed that these globalists, these classical globalists didn't 
think could have happened or that never saw happening, you know, and one of those being AI technology, you know, there was one guy, as I'll get into later, who did see that happening, but I don't think Bertrand Russell and some of these guys really saw artificial intelligence happening and as at the speed that it's happening. So I think that shift kind of changed the way they view it. And I think now what's happening is they're realizing that they can just replace us with artificial intelligence. It's not that they want to create artificial intelligence to give us the leisure of time. You know, they're not creating it so that we can have more time and so that everything can be automated. They're creating it so that we can be taken out of the picture completely. So that that's the way I see it. Yeah, that's that's very unsettling and I don't know, it definitely short-sighted. We don't need to get into my philosophical opinions on all this until maybe later on, but it definitely feels short-sighted and <laughs> inhuman to think that, you know, 1% of the world can exist without the rest of it and replace them with computers. I mean, hopefully that's not not coming soon. I mean, it reminds me I've been watching the X-Men a lot lately. It reminds me of the Sentinels just coming in and wiping everybody out, right? And obviously yeah. they're not built that strong. Otherwise, the whole world would be taken over, you know, one blast from Cyclops and they're good. But yeah, it's it's weird, man. It's definitely weird. You know, we're using technology, we're creating these sort of um places where people can understand these ideas and at the very same moment there's the exact opposite going on where people are watching like horrible fight videos or depraved things on the internet or, or communicating in a just inhuman way with each other over video games and killing you know i mean as amazing as this a conversation like this can be there's also the exact opposite end of the spectrum right so that is something we have to keep in mind using this technology and if the AI is capable of what humans are, then yeah, this is it. we're in for a pretty dark reality if AI gets a, a foothold, right? Oh yeah, yeah, man. I think a lot of things are going to unfold that we cannot foresee, mm. you know. And I think it's not going to go the way the globalists think it's going to go, and it's probably not even going to go the way that we think it's going to go. It's it's just all going to be un very exciting. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's going to unfold in ways that we cannot even imagine. But the more we're prepared and the more healthy we are throughout the process, you know, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. But we got to really focus on that, you know, focus on staying healthy, focus on staying educated and, and prepared for whatever may come, because it's going to be something we can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Now, this committee of 300, they have connections, as you said, to some curious people in Italy, possibly mafia seems to make sense. These groups seem to be sort of hand in glove, you know, secret societies and criminal networks. They operate within the same sort of underbelly. But, you know, the, the academic types, they, they have a more polished reputation, right? So, you know, where do they come into the picture? Is it simply just like the bane of them, like to think of us, like we're their burden because they're so smart and we're so, you know, they're making up for our, as the 99% percent are, you know, lack of higher intelligence, whatever they perceive as, as higher. Yeah. Well, the, so the committee of 300 as a title, that is a, term that john coleman coined it's not an actual group so it's just like a general term that he coined and he got that term from again walter rathenau's quote 
where stating that there are 300 men who who rule the the, the world. So that's where he got the the number 300, and then he put together the term the, the committee of 300. But there isn't like an actual committee of 300. That was just his, you know, term. But he believed that all these groups that we're seeing around the world, like the Club of Rome and some of these other ones that I'll get into, were all branches of this, you know, proverbial committee of 300. Right. And so we don't really know who Walter Rathenau was referring to. And he was assassinated, unfortunately, so we'll never know who he was referring to. But Walter Rathenau, as I was stating, you know, he was a, a very prominent figure in Germany and in the evolving industrial political world. So he wasn't just some quack, you know, some whatever, like he wasn't delusional. He, he was a smart, intelligent man. So for him to say that, you know, there must've been something to that. He must've saw something that we didn't see. And what I think he saw was what I presented in my documentary was that there was an evolving shift taking place. You know, we were leaving the old agricultural world and we were entering this industrial revolution where the power of the world could really be in the hands of the few because we were becoming more and more dependent on machine. So the more and more dependent we are on machine, whoever controls the network and sources of the machines controls the entire world. And so that's why all these industrialists throughout the 20th century kept speaking on this, you know, like, man, we need to come together and build this global community because the more interconnected we are, then the more we can control the narrative and the, the shifts that is taking place. Yeah. And they did this through different areas and aspects of life as I'll get into. Yeah. It certainly seems like we're already in the throes of that. So let's get into it. You know, I mean, look at the world around us. It's all planned obsolescence. Anything you get at the store has an expiration date, even if it's not edible, you know? I mean, what does that yeah. tell you? Yeah, and also, as you said, like with the mafias and stuff like that, a lot of these guys, a lot of these globalists that we're going to be covering, they were they were just academic guys. You know, they were, they were intelligent, academic, and militaristic men. You know, they had high academic and military backgrounds, and a lot of them were handpicked by the governments because of their resume. And a lot of these guys ended up coming to the same conclusion, you know, that we should build a global community of government and corporatocracy. And so the next organization that Coleman covers is the Tavistock Institute, which I'm sure you've probably heard of. And so the Tavistock Institute was put together in 1947, so actually a little bit before the Club of Rome. But the Tavistock Institute was the first global psychological movement. So it was the first group that consisted of global psychologists. And they were founded by the Rockefeller Foundation, or they were, they were given a grant, sorry, they were given a grant by the Rockefeller Foundation and it was started by three psychologists, Eric Trist, Wilfred Beyond, and Jock Sutherland. But all three of those dudes, being young men then, were influenced by Dr. Kurt Lewin. And so Dr. Kurt Lewin was a German-born American, served in World War One. He did some work in, at the State of University of Iowa when he moved over here. And he was also the founder and director of the Research Center for Group Dynamics at MIT. Now, group dynamics was an early term basically for, you know, studying the behavior of 
mass the mass or the population so in other words it's like mass population control so group dynamics is mass population control that's what he would study is is the behavior of populations and how we can foresee that you know in interact with it manipulate it all that kind of stuff and during world war ii kurt lewin was employed by the oss the forerunner of the cia to help them come up with psychological warfare tactics because he was an elite psychologist and so he was the dude that influenced the Tavistock Institute and what they were doing, which was building a global community of psychologists. And one of the more interesting characters that came out of the Tavistock Institute was one of its earliest directors, a guy by the name of John Rawling Reese. Now the Tavistock Institute used to be known as the Tavistock Clinic before it became the Institute. It was a smaller clinic and John Rawling Reese was the director of the Tavistock Clinic back in 1933. And he was a World War I medical officer. And he is a very decorated guy. So he spent a lot of years during World War I advancing war psychiatry, military psychiatry. And he has he had experiences in both world wars, World War I and II as a medical officer, and he saw a lot. He saw a lot of war, he traveled a lot, and so he saw the effects, the psychological effects of war and all that kind of stuff. And in his mid-50s, or I think in the mid-1950s, one of the two, he founded the World Federation for Mental Health. So again, one of these globalist guys in the psychological or mental health system of it. And he wrote a very interesting book known as The Shaping of Psychiatry by War. Another one of these very important books for the globalist. And in that book, he basically stated that war is useful or it can be useful for psychologists and psychiatrists because in war, we have a very unique situation where humans have to come together. They have to unite and become uniform and quickly and so a lot happens in the human mind when they're faced with that kind of trauma and he was on the front lines he saw this himself so he wrote these books and started coming up with these ideas and he wanted to create a global psychiatry movement and he wanted to organize behavior programs that would kind of manipulate and, and, and influence global population and Uh, He wrote an essay known as The Strategic Planning for Mental Health in 1940. And in that essay, he wrote, as I quote, public life, politics and industry should be within our sphere of influence. If we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. It really wouldn't matter if no one ever heard of this council again, provided that the work was done. Let us all, therefore, very secretly be fifth columnist. And the press and other publications and are the most obvious ways by which our propaganda can be got across. And it needs the thought and work of every one of us to get this going. So again, this is John Rawling Reese, one of the early Tavistock Institute directors, writing about a new world order, global system of psychologists shaping human behavior. And in this 
quote that I just read, he said we should become fifth columnists. A fifth columnist is a war terminology. It's an old terminology that basically means a spy. To be a fifth columnist means to be a, a, a spy. So he was saying that, you know, we need to secretly infiltrate the world, secretly infiltrate society as psychologists to influence, manipulate, and guide the world into where we want it to go. Yikes. Wow. I mean, put that in perspective with what people have been talking about over the past 10 years, and it's really... You know, frightening, you know, this whole mental health movement. I mean, people are obsessed with it. And obviously, it's all connected to big pharma. And, you know, guys like you and I probably are well aware of all the dangers of big pharma. But people who aren't as suspicious, they just fall in, you know, fall in line with what their doctor prescribes. And, and they think from the bottom of their heart that they're getting great advice. And, you know, sometimes they are, I'm not saying doctors are, are terrible people altogether, but for the most part, you know, when you hear something like fifth column activity, can we dive into that term a little bit more? What is a fifth columnist columnist? Yeah. So I never heard that term until I started doing this research. And so apparently after, I, after a little bit of research, when I came across it, it's, it's an old term that was used like in the 20th century, specifically in like war terminology. So to be a fifth columnist, I guess just basically means to be a spy. And I don't really know the etymology behind that or like the history of how that came Maybe. about, but. Maybe it implies something like, you know, the fifth column of a newspaper being a place where people don't generally read very, you know, maybe only read the first few pages, the first few <laughs> columns. And maybe that was something spies took advantage of. They'd leave little coded messages in the fifth column. Who knows? Yeah, um, that's kind of what I was figuring. It's probably some weird newspaper thing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> huh. That's very interesting. And a term like that definitely raises eyebrows, but... Even more so, this psychology of war, it brings to mind Colonel Michael Aquino's book, I think it's Psy War or Mind War, something like that. And yeah, his his theories kind of integrated the occult into this, but you know, really the mind is our interface with the rest of the world. So a psychologist is like, you know, they could be manipulating culture to study the mind. They could be manipulating your environment to study your mind. They could be manipulating your social circles. I mean, there's a so whole variety of, of levels that they can attack this sort of research. We're going to call it research, but it really feels like warfare, right? I mean, it seems like the upper class is trying to weaponize this this stuff in order to use knowledge against the you know rest of the world the lower classes the people who are who are there who are they're feeding off of like a parasite you know yeah yeah and we see a lot of this being employed right now you know with specifically in education and just pop culture where they're trying to like reverse things and, and with that being said going back to bertrand russell he wrote an important book for the globalists known as The Impact of Science on Society. And in that book, he prophesied or predicted or planned, however you want to look at it, and I quote, the social psychologist of the future will have a number of classes of school children on whom they will try different methods of producing an unshakable convic conviction that snow is black. Various results 
will soon be arrived at. First, that the influence of home is obstructive. Second, that not much can be done unless indoctrination begins before the age of 10. Third, that verses set to music and repeatedly intoned are very effective. Wow, and think about the the way music has changed over the past half of a century, right? I mean, it's gone from something that was melodic and informative and uplifting to very quick and repetitive. I mean, even the po- the positive music has that like repetitive tone to it. And even the same melodies are being used over and over again, especially with rap. You see it. I mean, it's so obvious with rap, but rock and roll does the same thing. I mean, with that hell heavy metal, dark vibe. I mean, I've had a a guy, Tom Barber on the show who, who is a, a, a metal and, and he talked about like overcoming the darkness and how there's a lot of darkness in that industry and how he's trying to, you know, make a change and go towards something else. And yeah, (laughs) you look at places that are affected by this type of music and it doesn't bode well for people, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting how they've, they've infected and invaded nations with this, right? I mean, one thing I remember when I was in school, they were telling us about the Soviet Union and all the things that happened during the Cold War. And one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting was like Russian people would have to like get bootleg versions of like the Beatles, like thrown over the border, so like smuggled in somehow. And they would like copy them on these weird like x-ray paper, like because they don't they didn't have the vinyl or the wax to make a record, but they would like stack a bunch of x-ray sheets, you know, that you get from an x-ray machine and use that to to you know, copy the music. So you have all these like 70s Led Zeppelin, like weird x-ray tapes in Russia of like funky sounds because it didn't quite perfectly match it. And yeah, I wonder what that was. Maybe the Russians were like, no, (laughs) this is a good thing that you guys aren't getting the music, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're not getting the indoctrination. Right. Wow. But it's too late now, man. The Beatles are everywhere. Can't escape them. Well, yeah, and the Tavistock Institute has a direct link to a lot of those English musicians, too. The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, The Who. I mean, they all came out of that same area. The London, what they call it? The London Invasion or the British Invasion was a big movement in music in America. So, yeah, it's, it's really incredible how they've implanted this into the culture in a way that people don't even question it, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, dude. And then get on that note, the next character in this tragic play is Edward Bernays. Mm. And he played a huge role in shaping society and culture. And so Edward Bernays was the nephew to Sigmund Freud, you know, basically regarded as one of the fathers of psychology. And Edward Bernays had an early career in writing, specifically writing reviews And so he would write little reviews for like medical companies. And then he kind of went into like the produce industry, like writing reviews for grocery stores and stuff like that. And eventually he he started his own review company known as the Medical Review of Reviews Sociological Fund Committee. 
I don't know why he went with that name, but he did. So he had his own review company and it was ingenious because he noticed that a lot of companies were, were paying a lot of good money for reviews, specifically positive reviews. So he started to be funded by guys like Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, a lot of these elite to write public, to write positive reviews. So to rig the reviews of their products and stuff like that. And it worked back in the day. People would see the reviews and be like, oh, wow, like this must be a great product. And so they would buy it, you know, and this is before the Internet and all of that. So whenever you saw it in a newspaper, it was must be true. So he was, he was getting paid by these elite to write positive reviews for their products. And he was another one of those intellectual, you know, guys who ended up being swayed to the globalist philosophy. And he wrote a very famous book named Propaganda. And during World War One, he was employed by the CPI, the Committee on Public Information, basically to help come up with wartime propaganda to help get the people on the side of the government for for these wars and stuff like that. And in his book, Propaganda, he wrote, and I quote here, there was one basic lesson I learned in the CPI that efforts comparable to those applied by the CPI to affect the attitudes of the enemy of neutrals and people of this country could be applied with equal facility to peacetime pursuits. In other words, what could be done for a nation at war could be done for organizations and people in a nation at, at peace. So he realized through his work during World War One. When he was helping, you know, brainwash people to accept war, he realized that those methods and tactics could be used in every day just to get people to buy products for his customers who are paying him for these reviews and stuff like that. And so Edward Bernay, some of the social changes that he was behind was, for example, the convincing of American men to wear wristwatches. So he's a guy who made that popular. So back in the day, guys used to wear pocket watches. Now, to wear a wristwatch was seen as feminine at one point. So he was able to slowly make that shift into getting men to wear wristwatches, which was a genius thing for him and his client because that was a whole half of the population who weren't wearing wristwatches. And so now the wristwatch industry was booming because now they're selling to both men and women. And another thing that he was behind was making smoking in public acceptable for women. You know, that used to be looked down upon, but through his advertising and subliminal messaging, he got it so that women saw smoking as classy and sexy and stuff like that. So again, a whole half of the population that wasn't buying cigarettes was now buying cigarettes. And he also made bacon and eggs, the classic American breakfast. So that was never like an American thing. That was all Edward Bernays and, and his propaganda. He made it like the American breakfast. And again, he did that for his clients. You know, his one of his clients was whatever, the breakfast industry, whoever it was, who came to him and asked him to make bacon and eggs the American breakfast. And he was successful in that. And another random one was he made plastic cups be seen as more sanitary as than glass cups or something, I'm, I'm guessing. So the whole like Dixie cup thing that when that first came out back in the day, like he was hired to make those seem as as good and sanitary and stuff like that. So all of his clients were just coming to him, giving him money to make these things become acceptable in society. And so he was a master propagandist and he understood human behavior and how to get it to shift. Mm. And in his book, Propaganda, which he published in 1928, he also mentions 
The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Wow. Wow. And put that in perspective with Netflix, the fact that, you know, this man who you just mentioned, Bernays, his nephew, I believe, is the founder of Netflix, right? (laughs) People are complaining that, oh, you know, television, movies are dead. Who, who weaponized streaming? Netflix did, right? They made it cheap, available, affordable for everyone in their homes. And now everybody are, they're watching, you know, whatever appeals to them on Netflix. We're not all participating in the same culture anymore. Maybe that's for the better. Maybe that's for the worse. Maybe they're just shifting, you know, agendas. Or, but either way, I mean, there's been plenty of uh, speculation and suspicion around Netflix. And <laughs> with this in mind, I think all of that suspicion is well placed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I'll get into towards the, the end of the presentation, Henry Kissinger spoke about this. He spoke about the world becoming more and more individualized in the market and that everything's basically just an overload, over-sensory market. And now, like, as you said, we're not all going to the movies to see the same movie and have that cultural experience. It's just all individualized. It's just in your face. Like, what do you want to watch? What do you want to buy? Like, as long as we're buying and consuming, the machine doesn't care anymore. It's just, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh yeah, big blockbuster movie, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are all going to come and see this one movie. Now it's like, well, we can just sell millions of people that one product that they specifically want to see, you know? So it's just this overload, over-sensory, individualized market. And we're slowly going to merge like into the universe of WALL-E, the Disney movie where we're just all floating in our little like rover chairs and just being fed, right. you know, movies in, through our glasses well, and, and, and whatever. It's, it's, it's right to point out how impulsive it is. You're absolutely right. I mean, that the fact is, is that you can get it now instead of having to wait till Friday night when it premieres or whatever, you can get it now. You can quit your job and spend the rest of your day just yeah, face in the phone or screen or wherever and yeah it's becoming a, a problem for for certainly for children and i you know I, I don't know that you're much older than me i think we're around the same age actually and you know our generation we got hit with the the computers like right away in school you know it was like i think middle school they're like yeah there's a new class computer class get in there use your little apple each kid got like an apple computer desktop that we could use each week you know and it's like whoa you know all of, we were all playing games we weren't we didn't care about yeah. this piece of technology we just wanted to figure out where the games were but that was a part of the the psych psychological warfare i'm sure you know i mean look at where video games have accelerated to now people are literally being consumed by the video game they put on a helmet and they're in another reality literally when you know first it was just like you had to use your imagination still to see these little eight bits as more than you know just images on a screen so yeah it's it's advancing very quickly now you mentioned somebody being sort of connected to AI or predicting AI very early on. This wasn't Bernays. Who who is this? Are we just skipping ahead here, getting to this guy? 
Yeah, skipping a little bit. We're almost there. Okay, okay. Almost well, there. then let's, let's keep moving at the pace we're going. <clears throat> yeah, so going from Bernays, then we have the, the other organization that a Coleman covered, and that is the Council on Foreign Relations. So the Council on Foreign Relations is this front, you know, political, academic, corporatocracy group who basically is like a consultant group for, for the U.S. politicians and the U.S governmental world I mean, they basically you know they, they counsel them in foreign relations you know and they, and they help build these international globalist relations and they try to influence policy making through the in, for the interests of these globalist corporatocratic companies and stuff like that and so the, but the council on foreign relations has a history with jp morgan in a sense. So because the Council on Foreign Relations, they actually they are actually deeply connected to a lot of the American media. So a lot of the American media, which is all basically bought out at this point by like six major companies, a lot of those six major companies, a lot of their higher up CEOs and stuff like that are either board members of the Council of Foreign Relations or are related to board members or connected to it. And so the Council of Foreign Relations is just like this, again, Committee of 300 branch who uses its organization to send out its emissaries and influence policymaking and, and shift it all and guide it all towards the globalist agenda. And J.P. Morgan was, was one of the first to do that. So there is a record that you can find online known as the U.S. Congressional Record from February 9th, 1917. And in that U.S. Congressional Record, there's a testimony spoken against J.P. Morgan. And what we find is that in 1915, J.P. Morgan got 12 men who were all you know, higher ups in the news industry at that point. And he hired these 12 men to analyze all the U.S. papers and to come up with about 25 of which would be needed to control the narrative. So he said, go out and analyze all the newspaper companies and come back and tell me which are the ones that we would need to buy out in order to be able to control the narrative. And so they did that. And so JP Morgan bought out like the 25 of the most influential newspaper companies and used those newspaper companies to disseminate the policies and propaganda that he and his constituents wanted to, to be, you know, pushed on the people. And so this was a blueprint that was copied and through the Council on Foreign Relations. And J.P. Morgan was one of the founding and funding members of the Council on Foreign Relations or one of the founding funding members of it. So he put a lot of money into the Council on Foreign Relations. And I think he employed one of his constituents or associates as like the first director. And so the Council on Foreign Relations, again, is connected through the, the six major companies, six major media companies, which are like Disney, CBS, AT&T, and stuff like that. And so these six major media companies who are pushing propaganda and subliminal messaging and all that are also <clears throat> pushing out messages through a lot of the major newspaper corporations still to this day, like the Washington Post, New York Times, and stuff like that. So all of this American media is bought out. It's pushing policies, pushing propaganda, and it's doing so through the interests of organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations. And going from there, we have an interesting quote from Bill Clinton. So in Bill Clinton's 1992 acceptance speech, he mentions a character who is a very important 
So in his speech, he says, as a teenager, I heard John F. Kennedy. No, sorry. No, he said, yeah, as a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown, I heard that call clarified by a professor named Carol Quigley. And so, again, this is Bill Clinton at his 1992 presidential acceptance. He said he mentions his old professor, Carol Quigley. So who is Carol Quigley? Carol Quigley taught at Harvard, Princeton, and Georgetown University, and he was a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense, the Navy, the Smithsonian Institute, and the House Select Committee on Astronautics and Space Exploration. And Carol Quigley wrote a very important book that I think every American should read, you know, in high school, if not college. You got a copy? Hell yeah. Yep. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Tragedy and hope for the the audio listeners. But yeah, I picked this up at the beginning of the year because it's definitely I haven't read it yet, but it's definitely something that I, I need to to your point. It's it's very important. Yeah. So go on. Yeah, absolutely. So Carol Quigley, he wrote this book back in 1966. And as you see right there in your hands, it's a massive 1100 page book. And in this book, he basically timelines and details the globalist philosophy and the globalist history. And he does so not as a conspiracy theorist to kind of like expose them. He does so because he's actually impressed at their work. And so he's detailing their history because he's impressed by it. And he thinks that it's amazing. And in the book, he claims that he studied these elite firsthand and he was given access and privilege to these, to these elite and, and their operations for two years. And that those two years culminated in what is his book, tragedy and hope. And in it, I quote, he says, there does exist and has existed for a generation, an international Anglophile network, which operates to some extent in the way the communist act. I know of the operation of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. And he says, I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies. But in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown. And I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. So Carol Quigley was looking at this, was so fascinated. He thought these guys should not be secret. There should be no secret society. These guys were fascinating and what they were doing was so impressive that they should be known. And so this book, I think everybody should read it. I mean, he details, you know, what the what they've been doing, how they've been doing it, what they plan to do. And it's an amazing book because he's not writing it, you know, as a conspiracy theorist to expose them. He's writing it as a intellectual academic professor who's praising them. Mm. Well, with that in mind, do you think, you know, as self-identifying conspiracy theorists, do you think that we're... We could be wrong, and maybe Carol has a point to say that, you know, we should be impressed by their work or even, you know, try to follow suit. I, I don't know that he says that, but I'm kind of adding that on my own. But what do you think about Does that, like, kind of shake up your position? Because I, I, I'm kind of 
wondering really what he means by that. It's making me want to read this today. Well, you know, these globalists, they were a part of an old world. You know, they were a part of a shift. You know, they were in between the old world and the new world that we are now in. And so they saw this shift occurring and they took advantage of it. And guys like Carol Quigley are also part of a far, you know, a foregone time. And when you start to become a globalist or when you start to become more involved in the upper echelons of the corporatocracy, I imagine it can make you bitter at the world and it can make you and it can change you into a globalist. And as we see the trend with all of these guys is that they had high resumes in academia and military. And my, I myself have been through a lot in life and, you know, I've had to, I've had to go through a lot. I've had to provide a lot of, you know, I've had to elevate myself in many ways. You know, I come from a place where a lot of my friends fell victim to drugs, fell victim to, to gang life. You know, a lot of them are still struggling. A lot of them are just not getting ahead of, ahead in life. And because I chose to leave all of that, because I chose to elevate and go hard and destroy my old self, I've become bitter in certain ways. I've become bitter and I've become intolerant to certain habits and to, to certain attitudes and certain personalities. And I feel it's the same way with these globalists. You know, they, a lot of them become bitter because they start to see the entire world is kind of like lazy or they're just not smart or they're just not motivated. You know, they're just, you know, and that's where they get this idea of like, they just, they're just a mass, you know, we can just control them because they're, they're not even going to step up to the responsibility. And unfortunately to a degree, I, I understand that man, because I see it at the micro level, at the micro level, like I've had to step in and take care of so many people throughout my life, people older than me, you know, people who, and it's so I understand that bitterness and, and I understand that, that need to to operate at a high level in order to get shit done. So a lot of these guys are just seeing the world in their eyes go into shit and they feel they feel like they have to step in and no matter how harsh it may seem that they're stepping in so that they can guide the world and keep it going even if it's in a direction that we all don't agree with. Yeah, man. I appreciate you you sharing as deep as you, you did there. You know, I think a lot of people can benefit from that. And you're an extremely authentic person who deserves to, you know, get a, a bit of kudos for the work you've done to elevate yourself, brother. I mean, you're a successful person. You have your own, you know, you're self-made, you have your own business, and, and you're also taking your spare time to help others see the esoteric side of life. So I commend you for your efforts. And, you know, I I hope that, uh, you know, we can all forgive, you know, I mean, geez, it it is, it is hard to imagine, you know, the trauma people put themselves through, but we can't discount the, the trauma that the world has dealt them 
from early on. I mean, that is something I've thought about really often. I mean, living here in Connecticut, like we have a huge disparity between people who are well off and people who are not, you know, and I'm somewhere like in the middle skirting both sides, like hopefully staying on the, the well off side of it, if you know what I mean. And yeah, it's definitely rough and it makes you feel contempt for your own brothers in a way, because, you know, like, Take it from me, I had a brick thrown through my car window a few months ago, you know, and that wasn't cool, and it made me really hateful for a few weeks, and I still kind of think about that day like, oh, geez, I should have done this, I should have done that, I should have done that instead, you know, and, and yeah, at the end of the day, all I can do is just forgive and, and be, you know, the best version of myself and maybe take the high road, right? Not <laughs> retaliate or, or, you know, something worse. Right. So yeah, it's, it's a tough position we're in. And I think that that's a part of the narrative that's putting us in that state of deterioration to go back to what Bertrand Russell was saying. Cause this like hero complex has been implanted in the culture as well. You know, these people who want to be, a savior, right? The savior complex. And I think that can be a good thing, sort of like the way your body, when it has, you know, some invader, it sends some white blood cells to react to that, right? I think certain in certain ways, you know, we, we can be like the white blood cells on a macro level in that sense. But it also can go another way where people end up creating more problems because they're like falling into that agenda that seems to be problem, reaction, solution. This is like how they stay five years ahead of everybody, as you were saying before, right? And never letting on that they're five years ahead because then people would be suspicious of the solution that they come and, and impose. But, you know, in... in light of what we were just saying about, you know, like seeing the world for what it is and, and wanting to help and kind of having that, I mean, that realization that some people just don't see that and can't help themselves. I mean, how do you think we, we move forward? Is it, is it exposing these folks who, who take it upon themselves to change the world in a way that may not benefit the rest of us? Well, I think it starts with having a moment of clarity and, you know, well, there's, there's, everybody's going to reach that, that place of a sovereignty, as I call it, and through different paths. And this is actually something that I've actually been working on. I'm working on building a curriculum of sovereignty. I'm actually working with a few people in my life personally to help get them out of, the situations they're in. So this is the curriculum that I'm building and I'm realizing because this is a real question and this is a real life issue that a lot of people are facing. You know, how do you get people out of the shit that they're in? How do you get people out of the trauma and the, the disparity that they're in so that they can be successful, healthy, and not fall victim to these things. And there are basically two paths, basically to make it simple. And you're either, to reach sovereignty, you're either going to be a, a, you're either going to be a leader or you're going to be, you know, a follower. I guess to put it simple, you're either going to be a boss or you're going to be a worker. And 
either the either of the two doesn't mean you're better than the other it just depends on your personality you know and for me i've always had been boss minded i've never wanted to work for other people and so the path to sovereignty for me is going to be through the boss path you know and i'm this is all developing curriculum so i might change the terminology but to make it simple you know, there's the boss, boss path and the worker path. And some people love being workers. You know, I have friends and family who are afraid of being bosses. They're afraid of owning business and, and responsibility and, sh- and stuff like that. So for them, they, they have no problem being just a teammate, you know, clocking in, clocking out. And that's chill. But it all starts with a moment of clarity that not everybody in life has. And that's the most delicate part of it because, you can, we can try to bring them to that and that, but that's the fight, you know, bringing people to clarity is is the struggle, but they have to have it one way or another. Either we bring it to them and they finally have it or something in life happens to, to where they have it. And that moment of clarity means realizing that for one, pretty much everything we've been taught is a lie. You know, that moment of clarity that, you know, religion isn't what we think it is. Government isn't what we think it is. Education is not what we think it is. Health is not what we think it is. And after that moment of clarity comes the the responsibility and the maturity of realizing that we are in control of our own lives. And once we realize that things aren't happening you know, to us and that we're not victims, then we can start from there and start to build sovereignty and we can start to take control of our lives. And again, either through the boss path or the worker path. And, you know, that's something that we can get deeper into another time. But basically how we help people isn't by scaring them and fear mongering them. How we help people is slowly guiding them to the realization that they're not a victim, that they do have power in this life and that we should start with the skills and resources that are directly available to us right now and build from those. Well said. Thank you. Eddie. I, I needed to hear that today. Maybe that was just for me. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we all need to to find a path to sovereignty. So that's beautiful that you're thinking that out and and coming up with a formula for people who who it might not be you know easily approachable. Because again, a lot of people are so in the hustle bustle that they don't have that moment of clarity. They have to be like confronted with it sometimes, or or given the space to have it themselves. Right. So, wow. Now. There may be people listening who are having that sort of moment now through the elucidation they're receiving with this information that you're sharing with us. So where were we in the presentation? I think (laughs) we kind of tangented into a different realm there for a moment. No worries. So now we're getting to the guy who predicted the the technocratic age. Mm. Excuse me there, I had to... No problem. Clear my nose. So the next character here is Zbigniew Brzezinski. Mm. So Zbigniew Brzezinski, he's already passed away, but he was another one of these very integral figures throughout American politics. And so he was a counselor to President Lyndon B. Johnson and to President Jimmy Carter. He was a national security advisor. 
And he was a major organizer, I think a founder of the Trilateral Commission. And he was a member of the Bilderberg Group and of the Council on Foreign Relations. So again, one of these high resume, elite corporatocracy, political guys, you know, shifting American politics and stuff like that throughout the 70s. And in the 70s, he wrote a book known as the known as Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technocratic Era. Another one of these very important books in the globalist community. And in that book, he basically prophesized you know, the, the, the technocratic age, the age of AI and stuff like that. He saw that trend. And in the book, he says, accordingly, both the growing capacity for the instant calculation of the most complex interactions and the increasing availability of biochemical means of human control augment the potential scope of consciously chosen direction and thereby also the pressures to direct, to choose, and to change. The technocratic age will create the possibility of extensive chemical mind control and the feasibility of manipulating the genetic structure. Pretty heavy stuff. Dude. Yeah, and you know, maybe four or five years ago wouldn't have been as clear as it is now what they are really designing there, right? I mean, geez, it seems to me like something's going on with the genes altering, you know, and now they're spilling all these chemicals to maybe cover up for whatever's to come so people don't make the direct link. But yeah, this is something that uh, it all connects, you know, there's this through line here. Oh, Zbigniew Brzezinski. That's a name that people could forget pretty easily. Wow. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I, I always say it's a, it's a, it's a hard name to pronounce, but a name we should not forget. And also in that book, he kind of touched on brainwashing. So he said that reliance on television and hence the tendency to replace language with imagery, which is international rather than national, and to include war coverage or scenes of hunger in places as distant as, for example, India, creates a somewhat more cosmopolitan, though highly impressionistic involvement in global affairs. So basically saying that, you know, we should use television and imagery to kind of shock people into being subduing under the globalist authority. You know, if we pump them with fear and stuff like that, then they'll become more and more dependent on the government and and stuff like that. Yeah, breaking down that sort of nationalistic identity by showing people, you know, poverty in India or war in the Middle East or, you know, who knows what else, a disaster here, a disaster there. And then where does all the money end up getting donated to? Well, these those, right? These sort of nationless corporations that seem to be feeding off of, off of human suffering. I mean, literally absorbing people's money and, and claiming to use that towards, you know, fixing a situation. I don't know if you've been to Louisiana, but I'm pretty sure that they're still not even recovered from Katrina. So, and that's just in the United States, the so-called greatest country in the world. Absolutely, man. Yeah. <clears throat> we'll get in towards the end of the presentation here. We just got a couple more guys to cover. So the next guy is Henry Kissinger. 
mm-hmm. very infamous character. Mm-hmm. And so Henry Kissinger was the United States Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. And he was a CFR board of director, and he is still a member. And he's been a foreign consultant to politicians and businesses for decades. He's a writer and influencer of the globalist philosophy. And many deem him as a war criminal as for all the work that he did that caused a lot of destruction in the Indochina area. And he wrote a book in 2009, literally titled The Chance for a New World Order. And in that book, he was basically examining the 2008 crisis. So in 2008, as many of us know, there was a huge deficit and, you know, the economy crashed. You know, my parents were affected by it. I was young then. I was probably like 10 or 11, but my parents were affected by that that, that crash, lost the house that they had just bought a few years before. It, It was very detrimental for a lot of people. And so he wrote right after that year in his book that, you know, these types of crises are opportunities for globalists. That's what he wrote. That's what he said. There's a, that's why he titled it the chance for a new world order. He, he wrote, and I quote, this generation of leaders has the opportunity to shape trans Pacific relations into a design for a common destiny through these crises. So he was building this philosophy of if there's a crisis and everything is destroyed, we can build from it and we can guide it into something else. In other words, take advantage of crises. And in 2014, he wrote another book titled World Order. And it is in this book that I mentioned earlier that he talked about that individualization of the marketplace. And for example, he said, Nearly every website contains some kind of customization function based on internet tracing codes designed to ascertain a user's background and preferences. These methods are intended to encourage users to consume more content and in doing so be exposed to more advertising. These subtle directions are in accordance with a broader trend to manage the traditional understanding of human choice. Goods are sorted and prioritized to present those which you would like. And online news is presented as news which will best suit you. So, go ahead. Mm, Very Orwellian. Yeah, news that suits you. Curated news. That seems to be what all of these apps are doing, right? Where they have, you know, trends that they recommended this and that and it's like, oh, yeah, well, I've only ever seen car videos since I typed in, you know, one car on YouTube. Now all I get is car videos. I mean, that's a poor example, but people have that experience now of, of like this sort of ready-made-to-order advertising that the Internet's doing to us through social media, YouTube, etc. makes me grateful to be a part of Rockfin where people can go and avoid all that junk. But yeah, still, there's things on YouTube that, you know, I can't get anywhere else. I, I still go there and, you know, I'm victim to this algorithm that now they're saying data, human biometric data is the next huge resource, right? They were saying data, you know, was king a few years ago oh data data this but it's really biometrics that they're after yeah control or or predicting what we can 
what we are going to do or what we would do. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With that being said, man, the next character, the next shady character is, of course, Klaus Schwab. Mm. And this is the last guy we're going to look at. And we'll wrap this thing up. So Klaus Schwab, of course, the, you know, crazy turtle looking dude who wants to kill us all. He met Kissinger at Harvard back in 1960s. So these guys have been in cahoots all the way back since then. And at that time, Kissinger, I think he was either teaching or giving presentations at Harvard. And Klaus Schwab was a student there, a young little dude. And he was recruited by Kissinger to be part of the International Seminar, which was a think tank group for young globalists. And it was a CIA-backed think tank group. And Klaus Schwab has some dubious family history. So his father was a Nazi officer, or he was in the Nazi army. And his father worked for bomb programs. So his father used to make bombs for the Nazis and stuff like that. His name was Eugene Schwab. And Klaus Schwab has some dubious corporatocracy history as well. So he helped see a merger of two major companies who were friends with his father. And that merger became known as the Solzer AG Company, which Schwab was a director of. And that company got caught doing some work in Southern Africa, making thermonuclear bombs with the apartheid government. And so Schwab, he's been involved with all this stuff since the 60s. And, of course, he created his famous group. You want to say something? No. Oh, sorry. And so Schwab, he created his group, the World Economic Forum, who we saw at the forefront through this whole scamdemic back in 1971. And, you know, he was a young buck then in the globalist community, you know, starting his own thing. And at the third meeting of the World Economic Forum, he had none other than Aurelio Pecci, co-founder of the Club of Rome, come be its keynote speaker. And so at that time, Schwab was a young buck. And so Pecci was a was a big timer to him. You know, the Club of Rome was a big timer. And again, the Club of Rome was the first global organization put together as a front group you know, supposedly fighting for world economics and world global changes, world climate changes. And so Schwab was influenced by these guys and took that blueprint and took that format. And of course, came up with the World Economic Forum, who was at the forefront today, holding all these, you know, Illuminati globalist presentations and meetings on how they can shift the world and shape it. And all of that, you know, culminated in his great philosophy known as the Great Reset, you know. And so he was influenced by all these guys we just named, specifically Kissinger, and who wrote about taking advantage of crises for global change. And so that is why Schwab is the, you know, hell-bent, weird, freaking Darth Sith Lord that he is with this Great Reset mindset is because he built that off of this hundred year history that we briefly covered. That's how we got to this guy is because it's been a steady history, a steady, you know, group of these men who all know each other, who are, who are all influenced by each other. And it's all brought us to this point that we are faced with. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think these men think of themselves as like 
neo-Roman emperors, like bringing back the Roman Empire in a way? Like, do you think it has some sort of like a racial identity for them or cultural identity being, you know, for the most part European, you know, even the wealthy Americans, Australians, Canadians, they're all European by, you know, genetics, right? So do you think it has something to do with this? I think the race racial part definitely plays a, a small role. I think it's a small role, but I think the race kind of transcends is transcended mm. in the in the money part of it. Right. You know, I think classism. at the end for them it's more about classism. Yeah, it's yeah. more about classism. But Carol Quigley in his book Tragedy and Hope, he states that this all kind of began with Cecil Rhodes. It all began with Cecil Rhodes and the round table group and Cecil Rhodes. He was an imperialist who exploited Southern Africa and its diamond and gold mines and just robbed all of it and created this, this world's pretty much hugest trust fund. And that trust fund was used to support the round table group. And Cecil Rhodes was a straight up racist. He, he was a racist and, an imperialist. And I don't mean that in like a woke sense of it. You know what I mean? But he was like truly a racist. He believed that the Anglo-Saxon race was the superior race. And he wanted, in his writings he spoke about, he wanted the Anglo-Saxon race to take over the world. And he was actually a bit bitter about the Americans. And he said that in his writings that he wanted his group to infiltrate America and take it back for, for Great Britain. Wow. Wow, and and there's a case to be made that they did that through the Ivy League system at the very least. So, wow, yeah, that's incredible. And I know Clinton, who we mentioned earlier, was a Rhodes Scholar, right? So that was the trust fund that was set up by Rhodes. And, yeah, even Churchill had those same sort of racist ideas about the rest of the world. And, yeah, we're not talking about this in a woke sense because the Wokeians, they've weaponized this to aid this same group in a way, right? I mean, that kind of falls into a different sort of psychological manipulation, I guess. You know, the people who are sort of the the betas for this group, right? They're sort of like the vanguard in a way on the cultural front, pushing in these sort of transhumanist, you know, back doors or trap doors rather, you know? <laughs> but yeah, 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 it's, it's very, very curious especially when you get a look at klaus schwab and his outfit choices the medallions he wears i mean he looks like he's straight out of like a super villain cast you know like where where is he getting his outfits from i I don't know maybe a magneto or someone (laughs) yeah the ego on these guys man like it's it's through the roof Mm. it's through the roof because the they yeah like you said they have this savior complex and to them, they're saving the world, they're guiding it, and this, this, and that. But it's like, bro, like they're just doing it in such a lame way. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it, it does, it does, yeah, it does make sense that Carol would be in awe. I mean, you you sort of get ingratiated into this circle. You you probably would feel quite privileged to to be a part of it. And, you know, from that perspective, it's probably it was probably pretty easy for them to, you know, give him a, you know, a nice well feathered bed and kind of make him feel comfortable for those two years. Who knows? Maybe that was a part of why he had a sort of warm depiction of this group, right? He wasn't totally alienated by them, but 
yeah, either way, you know, the truth is going to find its way to the light. And I think, you know, conversations like this are pushing that forward. It is a, a quite a huge book. So the more we could talk about it, maybe the, it'll get my ass to read it and others. Because <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> Absolutely, I'm, man. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, people can start with this podcast mm. or they can check out the, my documentary, which covers yes. this all in a little more detail. Yes. You know, just, just knowing this history, it just all makes sense now, you know, because Schwab came out of nowhere but he really didn't he's been around for decades right right and all of these you know characters are sort of funneled into those positions because it's ultimately about this group it seems you know they're just sort of playing a role and and taking reaping the rewards but yeah eddie please tell the folks where they can find you obviously youtube is is the place to check out your documentary the committee of 300 secret rulers uh so secret yeah, yeah. rulers of the world sorry and i'm going to put the link to that in the description of this episode whether people are watching on rockfin or listening on audio go over and hit that notification button subscribe to esoteric eddie tv youtube so yeah where else can people go to support you brother you got anything else you want to promote anything in the works for sure, for sure. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Esoteric Eddie. Post a lot of content on there, behind the scenes stuff, some serious, some funny. Mm. You can find my books at my website, esotericeddie.com. Got some merch and other stuff on there. Uh, I also been uh, uploading my articles on there too. So like a lot of my documentaries, the scripts, I've been uploading the, the articles on there so you can read the article versions and you can use them as sources for any history or essays or work that you're doing. But as of right now, yeah, I'm getting ready to wrap up my third book. So I'll be publishing my third book in April. And that book is about consciousness and the simulation reality or theory, however you like to look at it. It's going to be an awesome book. I'm having a great time, dude, like writing this one out. Almost done. I've learned I've learned so much about consciousness and like where it's at currently in, in mainstream science. And, and it's just, it's amazing, man. It's fascinating. So I'm going to be hyped to come back and talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I'm hoping to talk about that. We've had a few different people on the show talking about simulation from a whole bunch of different perspectives. You, you may have run into this guy Rizwan Verk in your research he's kind of like a an author in the simulation realm and yeah he he writes about it we've interviewed him on the show and he had a very sort of positive outlook on it i i just don't like the analogy i feel like it's too artificial but yeah. i understand the analogy and i think it's 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 almost like the computer invented itself like through just the way human the human mind works it's almost like the internet and the computer were kind of an inevitable step that's what i've come to to think maybe you you differ but either way i'm excited to to get into that with you man and of course people can check out your your first two books the anunnaki theorem and the lucifer mystery revealed esotericeddy.com that link is in the description you got merch you got your blog and of course the youtube channel Right on, dude. Thank you so much for spending some time with me here today, getting into this Committee of 300, or as they're more properly known, the Club of Rome. Are there any other names that, that are sort of in this network that maybe people are familiar with? The Bilderberg Group, is that yeah. connected at all? Yeah, so all these groups are a part of the 
Committee of 300 Nexus mm. that Coleman wrote about. And yeah, Club of Rome is one, the Tavistock Institute, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute of Affairs, which is the which is Britain's branch of the Council on Foreign Relations. But yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, man. There, there are hundreds of them, but they're all just a part of the, the centralized nexus of, of globalists. Really, that's what it is. It's, it's all globalists who are, inter, who are simultaneously coming up with the same goal. A lot of them just simultaneously came up with the same goal. And then as they you know, got bigger and bigger and more involved, then they become interconnected. It's kind of like this community, right? It's like when when I stepped into the podcast community last year, I slowly started to meet all you guys. And, you know, now I'm in the community. I know you. I know this guy. We're all interconnected. It's kind of the same way. You know, a lot of these guys that I detailed, they all simultaneously saw the vision, saw where the world was going. And then as they, you know, created that industry space, then, you know, it was just natural for all of them to eventually meet and communicate and then build upon that, that space of globalists. You know, we're in the space of the truther podcast community and they just happen to be in the space of the globalist technocratic reptilian space. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's weird. You know, I, you got to come out to New Haven sometime. I'll give you a little tour if you ever out here, because you do feel, you know, in a town like this, that you rub shoulders with those folks. I'm sure it's the same up in Massachusetts at Cambridge where Harvard is, but yeah, Yale has these types, you know, obviously they haven't filled that role yet but geez if i was around when klaus schwab was going to harvard i would have I, I wish i would have been like a bully in massachusetts at harvard <laughs> like just to like push him, him in a, the snow or something you know like yeah I give him a joint dude like hey man smoke this chill out bro you don't you know, need to rule the world Thank you. You know what? What am I thinking? That's probably the reason why he ended up like that is because of bullies. Uh, What am I thinking? You're right. We should we should get Klaus Schwab high. Maybe we could like uh, set that up where there's like a secret group of stoners who, you know, they don't do any assassinations. They just do like, you know, like uh, dosing, like they dose people with like THC and give them like uh, an experience, you know, because, yeah, Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know. It's something that... That'd be hilarious, dude. Operation Elevation. Yeah, dude. Somebody needs to try that. You know, I'm not recommending anybody do anything illegal, but, you know, who knows? Maybe things would change if Klaus Schwab smoked a joint. (laughs) Hell yeah, dude. Damn. Well, anyways. All right, Eddie. Thank you, brother. As we talked about at the beginning, you don't just have this great documentary committee of 300 you're covering a bunch of really interesting stuff you you have some interviews as well on your youtube channel we talked about your freemasons predicting world war three video and i found some other ones that were really really compelling i gotta still look into them but either way yeah london's alien guru that's the one i'm like what is this about all right brother i can go on all day (laughs) eddie Thank you so much for being here and everybody listening. Thank you for tuning in. Support Eddie at Esoteric Eddie TV on YouTube. And until next time, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. (laughs) 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into this episode with my friend Esoteric Eddie, who joins me here for the third time on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And I know we've doubled our numbers since Eddie was first on the show. So there's most likely a bunch of you who haven't heard those first two interviews uh, with Eddie here on the show. So go back and listen to those. Uh, they are episodes. Let's see. Episode. Oh, I typed in W. Episodes 179, 229. And he also joined me on episode six of Illuminati Confirmed. So go back and check those episodes out. And of course, support Eddie on YouTube. He's got a website, esotericeddie.com. You can pick up some merch and of course, be on the lookout for his next book. He's got a couple books available on Amazon and all of that is right there on his website. And the link is in the description. I don't want to hear it anymore in the comments, folks. If you want to know what song is on the podcast, every single song we use in this podcast is listed in the description of the episode. I do that to support the artists who contribute to this show, uh, and I really couldn't use their music unless I gave them credit. That's the whole point. So uh, yeah, if you, if you dig the music I use, whether it's a backtrack or one of the songs that I have commissioned. Uh, the rap song that we use for the intro of every episode and the rap songs that go in the outro of every episode and of course the hardcore breakdown remixed version made by my friend Shane Newsom uh, of the original intro I am thinking about replacing that original intro one day uh, but I need somebody who is either at the level or above the level of destiny lab so right now destiny lab is at the top they are champs great rappers great flow a lot of people actually thought that was a cypress hill song when they first heard it and uh, it blew a lot of people away and i'm ever grateful to destiny lab for putting that together for me because it really helped set the show apart so yeah a little behind the scenes on the music it's all listed in the description and of course in the description of each episode is the links to support the show that's right we've got a bunch of different places that you can go to support this show whether it's on patreon rockfin substack you can hit the link tree link tree slash mystic mark podcast and there's a bunch of ways to support me there you can go to the ko-fi store and sign up for a synchro wisdom dialogue uh, and if you do you'll have the opportunity to join me on the show. We could talk about whatever it is that you'd like to talk about. And hey, if the episode's interesting enough, I will put it right here on the main feed. So if you have a story you want to share with me, if you have advice you'd like to receive, maybe you want a, uh, a little bit of help planning a podcast, you don't know, you know what direction to go in, schedule a chance to talk with me and we will make it happen. I've already talk to eight different people on the synchro wisdom dialogue and a few of them have successfully launched their podcasts and they will be signed up on alt media united very soon uh i will admit i've been busy with other things and haven't been 
putting new podcasts on Alt Media United. So if you're listening to this and you emailed me and you're like, why didn't Mark get back to me? I will get back to you. I promise. Uh, just be patient. Uh, I do need all the support I can get so I could free up my time and focus 100% on the podcast and all the things that come along with the podcast. Of course, I'm doing this show, Esoteric America. Occasionally, Michael Wan and I will record an episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. Uh, Juan and I are going to be doing shows together, and my friend Al and I just launched a new podcast called Alt Media United, which if you listen to the episode with Monica Perez, you heard an episode of Alt Media United. So go over and subscribe to that RSS feed and be on the lookout for new episodes, updates, and information about this podcast cooperative that I helped found almost two years ago. I think it was about two years ago now. Uh, and yeah, it it is a podcast cooperative for podcasters by podcasters. If you have a podcast, hit me up. If you want to listen to some more podcasts, there's hundreds. At this point, there's a, at least 100 podcasts on the website. And you can check them all out there for free. Uh, you know, click the link, copy paste the RSS feed and put it into whatever podcast app you use to tune into this show. Uh, again can't do this without all you lovely folks and uh, i want to give a big shout out to ron and lewis who both picked up uh, pendants from the ko-fi store crystal pendants handmade wire wrapped by me uh, and i make these and i i didn't really want to part with them but i don't really have a choice uh, so there's a couple of them listed for a pretty high price. So if you're a baller, if you're a high roller, if you got a big tax return or uh, you just got a bonus and you want to really help support the show, consider picking up one of those pendants. Uh, some of them are moderately priced and uh, shout out to everyone who's picked up one of those. You are uh, supporting the show in a very unique and special way right each of each of the pendants are uh unique none of them are the same so I mean, i'm gonna keep making more new ones actually so uh yeah be on the lookout for that the links are in the description of course folks please support our friend esoteric eddie who is so freaking awesome this episode tracking down this mysterious committee of 300 as they've been called but, uh, you know, Esoteric Eddie is an inspiration. He is a self-made guy. You know, he kind of came from a rough area. Uh, definitely, you know, could have succumbed to the pressures of his environment, as he described some of his friends, you know, doing that. But instead, he not only opened his mind to all this truth, but he started his own small business as a plumber. And I didn't want to spend too much time talking about that because I, I didn't know how open he was about all that. But geez, that is just so cool and so inspirational. Uh, the fact that he not only has a successful you know, business doing you know, uh, a trade, that gives him time to write books, research, and create these awesome uh, videos and documentaries that he posts on his YouTube channel. So, you know, you, we really got to support more people like Eddie. 
hopefully he'll get to a point one day with his books and his content on YouTube to where, you know, he won't have to plumb as often. Maybe he'll only have to take a few jobs a month because he's making so much cash from uh, the podcast world and all of you beautiful, supportive people who engage with this truth because that's really at the end of the day why we're all here we want to find the truth and we can't do it without each other so thank you so much folks for being there and speaking of each other uh, sign up on the telegram you just make a telegram account super cool i'm pretty sure it's uh, anonymous i don't think you need to even use your real name and you can uh, join the telegram chat we have over 500 people in the chat a lot of the same people all the time, but that's cool. It's, it's a tight-knit group at this point. We get new people coming in and out every day. And if you're really cool and you're on the Substack or the Patreon, you get a special members-only Telegram link, which is super exclusive. And I'm always sharing some real deep dives in there uh, wherever or whenever uh, wherever I go, whenever it happens, uh, if there's something cool that I see, I most likely post it in that Telegram chat, whether it's an article I come across, uh, a photo of something that I see in the wild. Like, for instance, today, Tara and I went to North Salem, New York, which is, uh, you know, kind of a small, <laughs> nondescript town with some very wealthy people, but inside of this uh, town is a huge 60 ton boulder propped up on much smaller you know stones weighing probably a couple hundred pounds each um, and it's this giant dolmen that was so cool so we took some pictures and you could see those if you are a supporter and in the supporters only telegram chat so a bunch of perks a bunch of bonus content I cannot sell this short it is uh, just worth your time if you get any value out of the show consider sending some value back my way and you don't even have to sign up maybe you just get enough value out of the free show i mean a lot of people they they you know cut shows in half or you know do all these different things with their show to you know make you want to join the patreon uh, me i'm giving out most of my content for free uh, and very few podcasters do that so please do support uh, value for value if you can i have a cash app venmo paypal and bitcoin address those are all in the description of this episode you can use any one of those to support the podcast and keep new episodes coming out for free because i could always just go the you know um uh, subscriber model and split my show in half and uh and then you'll get less content for free so uh support the show now before it goes away if you're someone who likes to freeload or just you know sign up and subscribe and and get all the good karma because we're gonna have freeloaders regardless so really if you subscribe you're kind of like you know uh, it's like the bus. It's like driving in the bus lane on the highway. You're bringing like 10 other people with you in spirit when you sign up on the Patreon, the Rockfin, or the Substack. So 
but I'm getting into analogies and metaphors, so that is a sign that it's time to thank our sponsors. That's right, sponsors with two S's, right? No, three S's. Sponsors with three S's, because we have two sponsors this episode. That's right, Megan Cush, the great, wonderful angel Megan Cush, who is so kind and generous, sent me a care package of Cush Cream, and I cannot recommend her product enough. Cush Cream is just fantastic. It's the number one cannabis-infused topical cream. And aches and pains, inflammation, even little uh, bruises and bumps and pimples. I mean, this stuff is really uh, a miracle uh, heal all and that's coming from me not them uh, this is my sort of testimony here and yeah I love it I love Kush Cream and Megan Kush is an OG she is a true tried and true cannabis activist who was for the most part successful uh, at least in legalizing cannabis in her home state and where she resides now on the west coast so she took part in that fight, and um, hundreds, thousands of people did, but she is definitely an OG in that fight, not one of these, uh, you know, big pharma bros who are making their way into cannabis now. Uh, no, Megan Kush is uh, real, real uh, connected to cannabis. She is, she cares about the plant deeply, and she cares about the product and she also cares about the people who use her product kush cream so i can't thank her enough for her generosity i've given kush cream to my girlfriend tara of course and uh members of my family like my grandmother who from time to time has arthritis and she loves kush cream it's got the permafrost kind of uh soothing cooling effect that definitely helps mitigate those aches so uh, megan thank you so much and while you're at it folks go take some of that kush out of your jar roll it up light it up and uh, throw it in your hit kit keep it safe and sound that is the hit kit on instagram or hitkit.us wherever you browse the internet hitkit.us and check out the hit kit they have a huge variety i should say he has a huge variety of products because it is owned and operated small business certified here in the us of a that's garrett my man garrett at the hit kit he makes these himself he designed the product himself and i love it i bring my hit kit with me anytime i leave the house especially if i'm gonna go on a hike especially if i'm gonna be out for a while i want to take a few blunts with me uh, and I always <laughs> end up having to go to a gas station to pick up another lighter. And not anymore with the hit kit because I never lose my lighter. It's always right there in the hit kit. So uh, pick it up for your friend who's like me and always loses their lighter. Uh, get it for your friend who loves weird, interesting, strange stuff. Because not only is the hit kit a one-of-a-kind invention, but you can get all kinds of excellent designs on the hit kit for instance hermes trismegistus who has a qr code 
underfoot that when you scan uh, pulls up the seven hermetic laws so you could spark up a conversation while you get lit with your hit kit it's the number one way to get lit with the hit kit folks and garrett didn't write that i came up with that myself um and i'm getting a little tired here folks i'm getting a little spaced out actually to be honest uh something in that care package has me a little bit funkadelic out um a little bit funkadelic out so <laughs> say i'll say just that but uh, i have been writing intros for the podcast and my creativity is flowing and even though it's nighttime if i were to go for a walk right now i would bring my hit kit with me so uh you should do that too and i should turn this podcast off shout out to esoteric eddie shout out to everybody who's tuning in i love you all i appreciate you all and i hope you immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now so um, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows you know mark is doing a great job even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes <laughs> he's great no he's done a great job he's done a great job good job mark you can call uh, me mark palmer mark palmer's cool mark palmer's it's a beautiful day to be alive motherfuckers it's a beautiful day beautiful day it's a beautiful day to be alive that's all i gotta say i don't think it's about money i think they have so much it's just about it's it's, it's a spiritual war dude it's so much farther there's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour when it comes to the hour of reckoning recollect reconnect with days happening yeah are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grade or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you mastered light. Cause it's faster than a plank. When it's a bastard latched to the clank. Clang. The money don't mean a damn thing. Think. Happiness ain't coming from the bank. Dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg. The self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child And it takes a village to give it the illest style So, if your family think you crazy mm, And you ain't got a village No, you always got a place here yeah. Come kick it, we chillin' Exactly, dude, you get it, bro You're so smart, everybody, you're so smart Feel like I'm waking up for the first time Krusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine Feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes Sometimes, depression got me flaking like Sisyphus Others got me messing with mania like Icarus And meditation helps with the sickness Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't There's more power in spring flowers The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured Blurred lines between reality and fiction And some politicians get dirtier than dishes But for a minute, just forget about the government I'm looking at you and I and where the love went Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't And your family think you crazy, yeah And you ain't got a village I know you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin', yeah I'm a conspiracy boy Motherfuckers, motherfuckers I'm a conspiracy boy Motherfuckers, motherfuckers 